0: Welcome back, I'm continuing now with the ninth chapter of Yehoshua. This chapter picks up immediately following the overwhelming victory at the eye of Yehoshua and the people of Israel over their enemies. At this point, the text tells us six of the nations of the Promised Land, the land that Yehoshua and the people of Israel had been commanded to conquer, six of these nations unite together to prepare for battle for the purpose of defending their land and fighting the Israelites. But one group of people who lived in the land, the people from a place called Giv'on, they also heard about the victory at the Ai, but they had a different idea. Rather than preparing for battle, the text tells us they acted deceitfully. They gathered worn-out clothing, worn-out cracked bottles, tattered shoes, dry and moldy bread, and they came bearing these items to Yehoshua at the camp of the Israelites in Gilgal. They came and they said, We have come from a faraway land. We want to come live in peace with you. Please enter into a covenant with us. The people of Israel were suspicious. They thought that maybe these people actually were enemy neighbors. However, the newcomers went on, and they were very convincing. They told Yahushua, we're prepared to be servants. We've come from far away, and we want to serve your God. We heard about the wondrous miracles that God had performed for you and your nation in Egypt, and then following your exodus from Egypt, the victories that he gave you in battle against the kings of Emori, And on the advice of their elders, they said, they came to seek peace. They showed off their clothing, their food, as proof that they had come from a faraway place. The people of Israel accepted the tribute from the newcomers. The text tells us they accepted it without asking God. Yeshua and the elders reached a peace covenant with these newcomers, and they swore not to harm them during their conquest of the land. However, three days later, the Israelites somehow figured it out. They figured out that these people were actually locals. They, the Israelites wanted to attack them. They were angry about the deception they had just suffered. But the leaders of the tribes of Israel said they couldn't do that. They had sworn an oath to God that they would not harm these people. Instead, we should keep them alive. But, the leader said, these newcomers should become our servants our woodchoppers and our water carriers, our Etsim, etzim v'sho'avei mayim. At the end of the chapter, Yeshua confronted the newcomers, the people from Givon, and he said to them, why did you deceive us? Because you did this, you are cursed and you shall remain our servants. They replied to him candidly in a very, in a very poignant moment. They said, we heard what your God had done for you. We heard also that he commanded you to destroy all the inhabitants of our land. We were just afraid for our lives, so we did what was necessary to spare ourselves. So they said to Yahushua, do with us whatever you think is good and just. We are at your mercy. At the end of the chapter, Yahushua spared them from death, and as the leaders of the tribes had already said, he designated them as servants, the chotvei etzim v'shoavei mayim, the woodchoppers and water carriers for the people and for the mizbeach in the divine service in the temple. Ad hayom hazeh, until this day. The chapter says they they remain in this role until this day, which either means they remained in the role of servants until the day the chapter was composed, or maybe even it was intended for the audience to say that the Gevonim remain as servants, as the, water, as the woodchoppers and water carriers until today, whatever day it is that you're reading this. So that is the chapter. Just as a reminder, what I'm doing in this installment and in all other installments of the podcast is not to identify the pshat, the simple meaning of the chapter, or it's not even to find a meaning of the text that I find most compelling. What I would like to do is look at ways that modern social movements have seized upon themes and images and stories in the chapters of Yeshua and the other books of the Nevi and Rishonim to advance, their, to advance their agendas, to advance their goals uh, as, as social movements looking for followers. So the story of the Givonim is a very compelling one. Many people have noted their cleverness, also the earnestness of these newcomers when they replied candidly to Yahushua about their fears, and also people have noted the indignity of their fate that they acted in a very rational way, and yet they were punished for it, and they were rendered servants, woodchoppers and water carriers, for the entirety of their, of their stay with the Israelites. So let's start with one example. The American founding father Benjamin Franklin, he thought about the Givonim, and he focused on on the latter that I just mentioned, the indignity of what happened to them. In 1782, Benjamin Franklin was serving as the United States ambassador to France. At this point, the Revolutionary War was actually still going on in America, was still being fought. And because of that, George Washington's army had serious cash needs. So a great part of what Franklin was doing in Paris as the ambassador was securing loans, getting financial aid for the new fledgling nation. And he reflected on this in a letter to John Adams, another founding father. And he complained that he was, quote, quite sick of my Gibeonite office, that of drawing water for the whole congregation of Israel, unquote. Franklin understood his role of securing money as Gibeonite, as quintessentially that of what happened to the Gibeonim in the ninth chapter of Yehoshuaq. His biblical reference underscored his perception of his task of getting money for the new nation as, although it was important, it was thankless, relatively unrecognized. He wasn't a hero on the front lines. He was far away, just trying to draw water, as he said, for this new nation of Israel, so to speak. Uh, zooming forward now to 1947, I want to consider an example of a famous Israeli poet, playwright, and journalist lived throughout the mid-20th century, Natan Alterman. Alterman lived and worked in Tel Aviv. He's a very celebrated figure in Israeli literature. Originally, he was involved with the socialist Zionist movement, but later in his life became associated with the right-wing movement for a greater Israel when he opposed returning territories that Israel conquered in 1967. Perhaps one of Alterman's most celebrated poems is called Magash HaKesef, The Silver Platter. This poem was published in the newspaper Davar, in December 1947, which was shortly after the UN voted on its partition plan to create Israeli, Jewish, and Arab states in the Palestine Mandate, and at this point it was shortly after the outbreak of hostilities and what became Israel's War of Independence. So Altarman wrote this poem in December 1947, Magash HaKeseh, The Silver Platter. The poem celebrates the sacrifices of the soldiers of the new nation. And this poem has been regularly incorporated into Yom Hazikaron ceremonies in Israel, Memorial Day Ceremonies. I even learned it in an American Jewish school. This poem has become so essential to Israel's commemoration of its soldiers. And it's a very poignant poem. And what I'm going to do now is commit the sin of paraphrasing a poem, just to give you a sense of the story that it tells. In this poem, the nation of Israel is ready to receive its miracle, namely... The Jewish state. And suddenly, a young man and woman emerge. They're grimy, wearing dirty battle gear, torn clothing, and they're exhausted. And the people of Israel ask them, Miatem, who are you? And the young man and young woman wearing the battle gear reply, We are the Magasha Kesef, we are the silver platter on which the Jewish state was given to you. In this moment, they say to them, It's because of our sacrifice, of our suffering, that you are being blessed with this miracle. Ziva Shamir, who is a scholar of Hebrew literature at Tel Aviv University, revisited this poem in a recent book, and she noted that in the words of the poem, there's an apparent allusion to the givonim. First, there's a description of the young man and woman emerging before the people in their torn clothing, in their exhausted, dirty state. I actually would note that the wording, the Hebrew wording of the poem is not all that similar to the Hebrew wording in the ninth chapter of Yeshua, but the overall sense of the, the image that you receive when you're reading about this young man and woman emerging is, uh, does, does raise the story of the Givonim to mind. And the way they're greeted is also more directly reminiscent. The poem says, the people, in, in the poem, the people say to this young man and woman, Mi'atem, who are you? Similarly, in the ninth chapter of Yahushua, Joshua, when he confronts the Gibonim, says to them, Miatem, and where did you come Who are you, and where did you come from? So, Ziva Shamir, noting this apparent allusion to the story of the Gibonim in the poem Magasha Kesef, she interpreted this reference as a criticism of the Jews of the Palestine Mandate and subsequently of early Israel. She, she thought that Alterman made this illusion in order to criticize, to say that the people, the nation of Israel, treated their fighters like a tool, just like a simple wood chopper or water carrier, doing their dirty work for them, but didn't celebrate them, didn't treasure them. So in a way, like Benjamin Franklin, Ziva Shamir is interpreting Natan Alterman as as seeing the givonim, in our story in the ninth chapter of Yoshua, seeing the givonim as a symbol of people who do work that is, Essential but also undervalued, right? The givonim's service—drawing water and chopping wood—is obviously essential for the sustenance of the Jewish of the Israelite people. But it's lowly work, it's undignified work of servants. So when people throughout history, such as Ben Franklin, such as Nathan Alterman, want to refer to somebody who's unfairly being treated without dignity, despite their essential work, they refer back to the Gibonim. Now for my final example, I'm going to zoom forward once again to the United States in the era of Donald Trump. Now I'm going to start before the Trump presidency back to the early days of his campaign in late 2015. And during this time, the Trump campaign had sparked a national debate on US immigration policy. Now there's a really fascinating article that appeared in December of 2015 in a newspaper called the Holland Sentinel, a local paper in a place called Holland, Michigan, a city of over 100,000 people. And here, a columnist for the Holland Sentinel, a man named Jose Macias, uh, wrote a column titled The Gibeonite Deception. And what I'm going to do now, actually, is read verbatim several sentences from his powerful work. Macias says, quote, Like the Gibeonites, illegal immigrants often disguise themselves as people they are not. Usually, Once an illegal immigrant arrives in the U.S., they have to buy at least three fake identification cards to apply for work. A driver's license, a green card, and a social security card. These cost around $200 apiece. Immigrants usually spend between $2,000 and $10,000 for illegal passage, and then an additional $600 for these forms of identification. As the Gibeonites did, illegal immigrants deceive others about who they are in order to preserve their life or the lives of their loved ones back home. The consequence of lying for the Gibeonites was to become slaves. And in some way, many illegal migrants suffer the same fate. Many work for ridiculously low wages and long hours while others are physically or sexually abused by their superiors with the threat that if they say something, they'll be sent back to their countries. <laughs> Later in the article, Masias continued, what most of these people like the Gibeonites want is to preserve their lives. They come in order to look for the American dream just like your parents or grandparents did. Immigrants do not come to take something from you, unquote. Nassias here presents a deeply sympathetic reading of the Gibeonite story. He reads the ninth chapter of Joshua, and he sees in these newcomers the illegal immigrants of the United States today. They came and they lied, but they lie because they have to lie in order to live, in order to preserve themselves and support their families. And therefore, our responsibility, he says, is to protect these people, not to grow angry at them for their deception, but to understand their deception, to try and walk in their shoes, see that they need to protect, they're they're trying to protect themselves, and therefore, we, people of empathy, should work to protect them. But on the other side, there are people who use this story to reach quite an opposite conclusion. A scholar named James Hoffmeyer an Old Testament scholar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois, he, in addition to his, uh, to his biblical scholarship, has gotten involved in the immigration debate. In 2009, he wrote a book called The Immigration Crisis. And in this book, he performed a close reading of biblical texts to, to discern attitudes in the Bible toward aliens in the people of Israel. And my understanding is that he reaches nuanced conclusions But ultimately, his purpose is to defend secure border policies and to disparage the readings of other Christians of biblical texts as what he understands as a knee-jerk reaction of empathy. The Bible commands us to empathize with everybody who's suffering, where he says there's ample justification to read biblical texts to justify a secure border policy. So in February 2017, so now we're in the time of the Trump presidency, Hoffmeyer gave a quote to a newspaper called the Baptist Press as follows, quote, one might note that Joshua failed to properly vet the Gibeonites in Joshua 10. I believe he means Joshua 9. They lied about who they were and where they came from. Because of Israel's failure to verify the Gibeonite story, God's people violated an order regarding the people of the land which God had commanded, unquote. So here, the scholar Hoffmeyer uses what I think is distinctly Trumpian language. He speaks about Yehoshua and his people's failure to vet the Gibeonites. Right? They were commanded by God to destroy the nations of the land, to conquer the land for themselves because God promised it to them. And therefore, their failure to vet newcomers was a violation of God's order. I think that this tension between Hoffmeier's reading of the Gibeonim and Masias' reading of the Gibeonim shows the challenge of finding political messages and biblical sources. And just to clarify, I'm actually for that. I think that taking the Torah seriously demands looking to it to understand, to, to find answers to our pressing policy issues. But this example, among many, shows that when we look at biblical sources, we tend to look at it, to look at the same stories through different lenses. We bring our our preconceived biases, biases, our political ideologies to the text. And it's difficult to find, ultimately, uh, an authoritative reading. Perhaps there shouldn't be an authoritative reading. But ultimately, we can use the same text to mean very different things. And that's that's what's happening in the immigration debate in the time of Trump, uh, as it probably will continue to happen throughout American history. Thank you very much, and we'll pick up next time with the 10th chapter of Yeshua.